Hello, I'm sorry about that if you uh, checked in 10 minutes ago. The Wi-Fi is not completely fantastic uh, where I am, uh, although the place itself is beautiful. I am in Ohio, in the lakeside, Chautauqua. I cannot say the word for the life of me. Um, I, I learned it because I was going like, Sha, Seamus. So I remember Seamus for Sha, Ta for talk, Sha, Ta, and then Qua for quail. That's why I always remember Sha, Ta, Qua, but I still can't do it. But I've been here for a few days uh, teaching, speaking, and also having a holiday before I go back to Ireland. Um, I'm, so I'm sitting in a, uh, one of the buildings that has better Wi-Fi. I have a couple of friends with me. Um, you can see there's John, there's Adam. They're, they are the deconstructionists. They have a, a podcast that's very, very good. And I've been on it a couple of times, hence it's very, very good. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I used to not be able to tell who was Adam and who was John. I still have to look double because all young people look the same to me um, because they were introduced at the same time. But I think I've got the difference. So they're hanging out with me for a couple of days. <laughs> anyway, if I'd known that this place was so good, I would have like put out to lots of you. I would have said, come have a holiday because this is like a holiday place. Get, get a B&B, enjoy the water. Then we talk theology in the morning. We hang out, go for drinks in the evening. So I would have said that. But a few people have done that. A few people who have been following my work are here and um, are combining existential despair with ice cream and lakeside <laughs> walks. So it's very, very nice. So do feel free to say hi. This is my universal sign for typing on the interweb. Say hi, comments, thoughts. Um, I've been doing um, a series of talks that are loosely based on my last book, The Divine Magician. But a question that came up and a subject that I was trying to address today. Uh, thank you for the thumbs up, by the way, for that book. I appreciate that. I got two thumbs up, so that's both people who bought it or listening. That's very impressive. Um, the, a question that, that arose was, what is theological discourse? You know, what, what are we doing when, we're, when we talk theology? How does it work? And I can't go into the ins and outs of, you know, everything we covered, but I wanted to look at, Theology as having three uh, intertwined dimensions. Theology is a type of Trinitarian structure. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, feel free to ask some questions. And, you know, I'm influenced by Tillich uh, in what I'm about to say. So imagine um, an example I used this morning of somebody's just had a kid and they say, my child is the most beautiful child in the world. Right? So my child is the most beautiful child in the world. Then imagine someone coming up to them and saying, it's not. Your child's ugly. It's got big ears. It's got like wonky eyes and a big nose, right? You're misunderstanding what the parents are saying. What you're doing is you literally think the parents are saying, we have the most beautiful child in the world. Now, some parents are literalists. Some parents will put their children into pageants because they literally believe objectively that their child is the most beautiful child in the world. However, most parents... That's not what they're saying. They're not making a purely objective statement. They're not saying that if you put all children beside each other, it would be my child, then Jesus Christ, right? That's it. There's, there you go. There's the, and, then, and then it goes from there, right? Um, now, and, and, and the person fundamentally misunderstands if they think that the, the parent is making a purely objective statement. And yet, 
and yet they're not making a purely subjective statement either. Uh, you know, there's a there's a, a funny um, skit uh, online from two comedians I love called Mitchell and Webb, where they do this whole best man speech. And at the end, you know, the, before the best man gets up to talk, the groom does a, a, basically a shout out to the most beautiful woman in the world. And everybody claps and they have a drink, uh, sit down and the best man gets up and he's like, he's like, uh, yeah, serious, like the most beautiful girl in the world. I don't think so. And he's about to start and some people boo him and he's like taken aback. He's like, like, you don't seriously think that she's the most beautiful woman in the world, do you? And a few more people boo. And he's like, are you all delusional? I mean, she's not bad looking, but Audrey Hepburn, she ain't, right? And then, and he can't, he's so confused. He's going like, if this was the most beautiful woman in the world, the paparazzi would be here. We would be drinking champagne, not Prosecco. And people are like, like stunned at what he's saying, but he's stunned as well. He's like, you know, she's attractive. I'm not saying she's not attractive. I'm just saying that she's not the most beautiful woman in the world. He said, I was going to tell an anecdote about how the best, or, or how the groom ran naked through a hotel lobby. But I'm terrified that I will induce suicide from people who think they are witnessing a marriage of the gods, right? Now, this little skit is, he plays, the best man plays a type of psychotic. When he hears the man say, she is the most beautiful woman in the world. He thinks that she's making, he's making a purely objective statement. But he's not. And yet it's not purely subjective, right? The other side of this is he is saying, he's not saying, oh, you know, my, my partner is just okay looking. Or you say, oh, my child is just average looking, right? Or if you imagine, you know, those best dads, you know, for Happy Father's Day, you get best dad in the world mug. There's a little cartoon I once saw where this big factory just made one and the foreman said it would be completely illogical to make more than one mug saying world's greatest dad because of course there can only be one world's greatest dad, right? But the, 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 the other side is not to say, oh yeah, no, my, my dad is better than average. You buy a mug saying happy Father's Day, you're an all right dad, I would put you in the top 40% projectile, you know, not quite brilliant, my mate next door's got a better dad, but I've seen worse. Now actually that would be a great mug, and if you make that mug I probably would buy it for Father's Day. However, that's not what world's greatest dad mug actually means, right? The objective side is, there is a father that you love and you think is brilliant. That father is the objective side of the statement. The subjective side is your father is the measure of how you measure all fathers. If it's a good father, you go like, your, your father is the, is the measure beside which you measure all others. Or your child, you have this beautiful child, your child becomes this, the, the measure of what beauty is for you. So the subjective side is that objective child subjectively in your being becomes the measurement of beauty, right? So that's the subjective side. And then the eventual side um, is that your child hopefully humanizes you, sensitizes you to the important things in life, cultivates a grace, melts your heart. Maybe you were caught up in trying to always 
um, uh, you know, try to impress people at work or try to make a certain amount of money or do this or that. But then you say you have a child and, 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 and suddenly those things become less important and you're sensitized to the importance of love and family and, and, and bringing someone up and, and grace. So that's the eventful side. So when you say, my child's the most beautiful child in the world, you're saying something objective, there's an objective child. You're saying something subjective, that that child objectively becomes a subjective measurement for you of beauty. And there's an eventual element, an element of transformation, cultivating a sensitivity to love. All three are intertwined. You can't take one out from the other. As I say, a parent who is a literalist, a fundamentalist parent, is a pure objectivist and they put their children into pageants to win them, to show that their kid is objectively the most beautiful child in the world. But for most of us, that's not what's happening. And so when you're on YouTube looking at people argue for and against Christianity, for example, it can be like looking at a family talking to somebody else, them saying, my child is the most beautiful child in the world, literally, and the other person saying, no, they're not. And everybody else is like, what is going on, right? And what, what is this whole discussion about? It's completely bizarre, right? And, and, and I say it's not that the right answer is then in the middle of some sort of, oh yeah, you know, my, my kid's just average looking. In the same way you might be Catholic or a Methodist or whatever, I'm in a Methodist place, so there's a lot of Methodists, and you might go, my Methodism is the most beautiful uh, expression of faith in the world. Because that, you grew up in that, it helps you subjectively be a better person. It might help you become more caring. It might, it, it touches you because you grew up in it, it nurtured you. So that's the subjective side. And the eventual side, yes, is the cultivation of sensitivity. It helps you at its best think about how to be kind when your natural inclination might be to be nasty. It might encourage you to be gracious when you might want to judge. It might ask you to be sensitive to someone who you might want to write off. Or you might want to sit in and watch TV and your Methodism, uh, you remember something that encourages you to actually visit your friend who's not well and who's very depressed. And so it sensitizes you to the subjectivity of the other. right? these three elements. So if you try to make theology just one of these, it doesn't work. You can't have the eventual dimension without something happening, without something being there. You know, we have, we have words, we have language, we have tradition. But if that's just objective and it doesn't touch us subjectively, it's nothing, it's dead. You can't have something that's purely subjective without having some connection to reality. That's what a miracle is. A miracle is a strange event, something unusual that happens. A friend of mine a few years ago met someone they hadn't seen for 20 years on a rope bridge in the outback in Australia. And they, I think they'd been thinking about them or something, and then they, there they are, there they are on the rope bridge. So that's a weird, bizarre thing to happen, unusual thing to happen. But that's not a miracle. It also has to have a subjective dimension, as in that, whoa, hits you. And you're like, oh, wow, you know, I was just thinking about you. You know, that's, you mean something to me. It has a subjective element and it has to have an eventual element. It has to be like, oh, my goodness. And actually, you know, maybe we went out once and, and I've been thinking about you. And I feel like, you know, I was never, never the same 
when you left and I, I, I really felt that I needed to apologize to you or something like that. And, and, and meeting the person melts your heart and does something to you. You can't, a miracle can't be separated into something objective. Something purely objective is never a miracle. It has to have a subjective element and an, an eventual element. And theology, again, these three things, you can't separate and go, is Jesus God as an objective statement? That is a subjective statement simultaneously, an eventual statement simultaneously. This, it's something that, 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 that does, that, that, that creates. And that's why, that's why I would say that theology can never be reduced to a pure literalism. Um, it can never be divorced from the fact that you're speaking as a subject um, about an event that you know you can't objectively describe, you can't objectively hold on to, like a scientist talks about black holes. And, and it's not theology if it's not evental. That's why some people talk about theopoetics rather than theology. That theology is a theopoetics, like words that we bend and we stretch and, and that, that draw us into something that we cannot possibly actually express. The words don't nail it down, that's idolatry. So in, in terms of theology then, the theology we have, the language is objective. We're given a language. And it's contingent, you know, it depends on where you were born, who, who you grew up with, what books you've read, what language you've been given. You've been given something and that's objective. So, you know, you grew up Methodist, you've got that Methodist discourse, right? Then you've got the subjective element, how that has helped mould you, how that informs you, how that helps you see the world. And then the eventual element, the, the element that draws you into being more love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, these, these fruits that come out. And when those three combine, that's what theology at its best is. Um, a conservative theologian said, John McMarion said, theology is in a sense uh, an act of praise. It is, it is what we do, it's like, an, it's like building a church in the aftermath of an event to remember it to be able to go into that place to try to remain faithful to it. But the church doesn't describe what happened. It is the response to what happened. And so we create architectures with our words. And if we've read a lot and we've thought a lot and we've been educated, we might create quite beautiful um, word architectures. And if you know we're, we're, we haven't had a good education and that's not our thing, our word architectures might not be great. But neither word architecture gets closer to what they're built in response to. They're both acts of praise. They're both responses. So anyway, there you go. There's a Trinitarian view of theological discourse. That it has to have an objective element. And by the way, that just simply means there is something. Like the Bible is, is there. So there's an objective element. There's a Bible. Subjectively, you read it and it it means something to you subjectively. It connects with some of your experiences. And it has to have an eventual element. It has to draw you deeper into freedom, into justice, into mercy, into a transformed humane self. And, and insofar as, as our discourses have that, um, I think we can talk about them as being, um, a, that as being legitimate theology. Uh, oh, and... and I'll talk about atheism maybe in the next Facebook Live because that brings that in. It shows that atheism and theism are not enemies. 
It's not like what you hear in the schoolyard where atheism is on one side and theism is on the other side and they really don't like each other. No, atheism and theism have a passionate love affair. They fight, they make up, they go back and forth. In Christianity, atheism and theism are, are littered throughout because every time we name stuff with, with theology, name God, theism, we have to also dename atheism and remind ourselves that what we are saying is less than what we're saying. We live in the slash between the A and the T in atheism. We, we move, we jostle between those. And, um, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a deep theology is able to grasp, is able to grasp that. I hope that was of some interest to you. I wish you were here in Lakeside. Uh, they told me there was an Irish pub. That's how they got me here. But I can't find it. I think it's dry. I think they only lied to me. So um, uh, we're going to have to go out tonight to a pub, I think. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, next time if I ever speak here again, come have a family holiday and we'll all hang out. So let's see if anyone's got any questions or thoughts. And... Let's see if somebody from Copenhagen, Stephen, hey. Um, Benjamin, thank you for the positive vibes on the Divine Magician. We've got Pennsylvania. Uh, we've got Los Angeles, my home from home, which I, I, I love Los Angeles. Uh, okay, let's see. Any questions anyone has? Tim, Tim Page says the word... Uh, recalibration comes to mind uh, th through eventual life experience subjective assessment and understanding of the objective evolves scales can fall off our eyes so recalibration comes to mind through eventual life experience subjective assessment and understanding of object what's objective evolves the scales can fall from our eyes I like that I like that recalibration I think is a good term for this um, Let's see, Roberts says, similar to what the theologian John Hick referred to as the poetry of devotion and the hyperbole of the heart. Well, question mark, yeah. No, yeah, I haven't heard the name John Hick for a long time. <laughs> um, he was a fascinating guy. I've read a few of his books. And although I'm in a different tradition than him, I find him fascinating. I think he's very sensitive. And yeah, I think the poetry of devotion and the hyperbole of the heart um, are very beautiful phrases. Thank you. I might have to steal those. Um, let's see, how can we bridge these to have good conversations? Ask Kendra. I mean, when you think about it, if, if this result, so I say, my child is the most beautiful child in the world, that only puts me into conflict with another parent who says their child is the most beautiful child in the world. It only puts me into conflict with them if I'm being solely objective. If I'm saying, no, my child actually is much more beautiful than yours. Now, I'm not a parent, but I'm guessing a lot of parents do secretly think that. That's fine. You know, um, you know, everyone loves their own kids and thinks their neighbor's kids are awful. But technically, when you enter this space where you go, yes, I'm making an objective statement. In history, in a moment in time, my child was born and that child has had a subjective experience in my life like I can't just be objective I'm caught up with my child and with my child's well-being and with my child's future and my child helps me become a more beautiful and caring and loving person my child helps melt my heart my child helps convert me transform me it brings good news to me you can then also talk to a parent who makes exactly the same claim about their child 
Um, the, if you see what I mean. And this is not holding your position lightly. That's the other thing. That's not the alternative. This is not about us going, oh, well, our, child's are e our children are equally average. No, it's like they're wonderful. And by the way, it also doesn't stop you from saying, I sometimes hate my kid. This is so hard. I wish I'd never had a child. I've given up some dreams. That's all part of it as well. And none of that goes against loving your child and thinking your child is wonderful. None of that counts against it. Because when you enter this objective, subjective, evental triangle, um, you're able to hold those differences. You're able to affirm both of those things. And you're able to very much affirm other people when they say their child is the most beautiful child in the world. Um, oh, Albert uh, I asks, are you an open theist? I, every time I do a Facebook, someone asks me that question. It's really interesting. I don't know why. It's always a different person. It's not always Albert. It's not that Albert stalks me and is like trying to pin down, am I an open theist? Um, but I never see the question in time until it's over. And so that's why I've never answered it. So it's, that's interesting. I, I'm not an open theist, but not for the reasons that people might think. Open theism is way too metaphysical for me. It's, it's For those of you who are tech, into this kind of stuff, it's kind of like making these objective claims to kind of connect it with what I'm saying here um, about God. It's very like similar to process theology um, that, you know, God is open to the future. The future is radically contingent or the future is radically open. I, I agree with that. There's elements of open theism I agree in, agree with. I believe that the universe is, 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 there is a radical contingency and openness to the universe itself. But I avoid open theism's uh, traditional metaphysics. So that's the difference. That's that's the difference. Um, but I but I mean I I respect open theists. Um, if I had to be an orthodox theologian, I would probably be a process theologian. I think it's the best one around. Um, but yeah, but but unless someone holds a gun to my head and tells me I have to be a more orthodox theologian, I will continue to try to avoid such things. Um, hey, Gary from Denver. Um, and then uh, Kyle, I think it's Kyle, K-I-E-L, if I'm pronouncing that wrong, I'm sorry, um, just asked me, can I expand on what evental means? Yeah, ev event, um, evental comes from the term event, and it's used a lot in philosophy, and there's lots of ways you can look at it. It gets as complicated as, you know, as you want. But in, in a sense, evental is just that something happens that you cannot predict, that you can't kind of put in your diary. Something happens that 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 changes your life. That changes the course of your life. Like children are a form of event for many people. Maybe even weren't even expecting to have a child, or um, you know you you lose your job, or your something happens that you just never expected is going to happen, and and everything you predicted about what about what life was about, about your values, about what you were going to do is all just thrown up in the air and new possibilities, new worlds, new possible worlds become, open up. Um, and that's kind of the eventual. And so why I use it in the three is subjective and objective just means like something objective happens and hey, it touches me. Like, uh, um, you know, I get a new job or something like that, it touches me, but it doesn't, it doesn't call me into something deeper. It doesn't open new worlds of possibility. Uh, that's why, like in the Bible and miracles, you always see the objective, subjective, and evental. 
Like feeding of the 5,000 isn't a miracle. It's not a miracle. Not if it's purely an objective thing that you could video with a camcorder if it, if it literally happened. You know, you could video it. That's not a miracle. That's just a weird thing that happened that we might be able to explain someday. It has to also impact the individual. It's something that the people who are involved, they're taken up in. And it has to have an eventual element. Speaking of a world where everyone is cared for, a world where everyone is fed, a world where everyone is looked after, you know, where, where one person doesn't get more than another, a world of excess. So, so it has an eventual nature. It speaks of a world that we don't live in, but a world, you know, it's an aroma of a world that, that we might live in. So, to, so a miracle has to have those, those elements. And it's in the Bible, you always have those elements tied together. Um, okay, Dylan, you asked, uh, what are your thoughts on Christian atheism? Yeah, that's, that's a huge one. You know what, maybe Dylan, I'll do a whole Facebook live on that. But, but I, my whole atheism for Lent course was about trying to draw out how theism and atheism are interconnected in Christianity. And they're interconnected in various ways, even very conservative theology has this idea of the denaming of God. You nominate God, you name God, and you dename God, you denominate God. In fact, churches are called denominations, which I love. I love that. because, so In other words, because it reminds you that the church is the place that denames God, that denominates God. So every time we arrogantly think we know who or what God is, we name God. We also denominate and dename God, saying that God is you know, different or greater or other than we could ever imagine. So that's one, that's just one way, but there's a number of ways. That's one way in which theism and atheism intertwine in mysticism. Uh, you can you look up my atheism for Lent course if you want to go really deep into that stuff. You know, not that I'm trying to sell you my atheism for Lent course. I'm sure you could probably steal it online if you could you know, work it out, because, uh, but, but it's there somewhere. Um, uh, any questions from the uh, from the deconstructionists? I'm taking notes on my phone. They say and then I can produce questions. they're <laughs> saying they're taking notes. They're playing. I think they're playing like uh, battleships on their mobile phones. <laughs> oh no, they're watching me on their mobile phones. They're both on their mobile phones. Am I that boring? They're just sitting there on their mobile phones. So they're they're taking notes. They say that. that's very nice. Yeah, I'm very. This is this is a, I am a typical I am an armchair theologian. That's armchair. terrible. I am literally an armchair theologian right armchair now. Pyrotheologian. An armchair pyrotheologian. <laughs> uh, you know, I wish you guys. I mean, I, we've I've had such a good time here. I've had every day. I've got an hour-long lecture that I give, and then I get to relax. But I've really got to be able to go deep into some of these issues, and and I'm I'm rediscovering again that there is some hopefully liberating stuff in these ideas. I talked to a guy who said that he, uh, he, he, he looked like a big, strong guy, but he had polio when he was young. And he said his idol, the thing that he always wanted was to be able to climb mountains and do all of that. And he always felt that that was something that would make him happy. And actually, this week, through us talking about how we have to let go of the idea that there's something that would make us whole and complete, he was finally able to let go of that idea and said he just felt this massive weight lifted off him. So that was the other thing that I want to talk about in a Facebook Live is how we are, our ideas of God are like these sacred idols. Like we, we have these ideas of if only I could get something, then I'd be whole and complete. 
and it destroys us, it holds us down. And there is freedom not to pursue your happiness, that's great, but there is also freedom from the pursuit of what we think will make us happy. Mm. And, uh, and we can create spaces that help us find that freedom. So that'll be another Facebook Live. I got a question for you. Oh, yeah, we got one. For a lot of, a lot of people tuning in, and people like me and John, that are still a part of the faith community, but love what you're doing, and it's opening up new worlds and new possibilities, but we're nervous to kind of bring that stuff into our faith community. What are some really, what are some good, healthy ways that you've seen people appropriate your work in more traditional faith communities? Oh, yeah. Uh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, this is why I believe in the art of indirect communication, uh, like, which Kierkegaard was a big fan of. And I've talked about it in various places, so I won't, won't bore you with it. But, but the kind of the idea is like, is that poetry, storytelling, parables, comedy, music, rituals, all of these have the ability of reaching us at different levels. A parable can be heard at multiple levels at the same time. So, you know, somebody hears it at a, at a kind of a, a very basic level and somebody hears something else within it. Um, my whole thing is like, for example, worship. You do worship music. And, and my whole thing is we need music that's more like singer-songwriters, more like Bob Dylan, Tom Waits, music that connects with our humanity, the darkness of life, the doubts, so that we can access those elements of ourselves. But you don't go and just suddenly invite some singer-songwriter to come in and do that. You, you, you do sermons that say, the, the Psalms are full of joy and darkness. They're full of fighting with God and loving God. They express the full range of human emotions. So today in worship, we've just invited someone to come in and give us a song that's about the struggles of life. Um, I have a friend of mine who actually says, he says every worship, worship team should have one breakup song. Not a breakup song with Jesus, just one breakup song. You, know, awesome. that you listen. And, and yeah, and you set it up. Because you, you your job as, as, the, as the preacher yeah. is to set that up yeah. and to let people know not to be too afraid of it. Right. And you bring that song in. Just experience yeah. Here's what's about to happen. Here's what's going on. Being yeah. There. yeah. Bring, and our prayer, where you go, you know, a lot of prayer is about expressing the inner moans and groans of our being. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, God, I, oh, I pray for the kids in Somalia, and God, I pray for my neighbor, and God, you know, I just pray for the leaders of my country, right? God, like, you know what? I don't care about the kids in Somalia. I don't care about the leaders in my country. I slag them off on Twitter half the time. I don't care about my next-door neighbor. In fact, I hate my next-door neighbor because they keep on borrowing my lawnmower and never giving it back, right? What would it be like to have prayers that were honest? Like AA, where you have to admit the truth of your inner moons and groans of your being. So we pray what's called confessional prayer. God, I don't care about the leaders in our country. I don't care about the kids in Somalia, really. I like to pretend I do, but like, do I really? And you do prayers that bring all that to the surface. Not so that you're condemned, because you have to have grace, a community of grace that accepts you in that honesty. But then you confront yourself and you're like oh i have to do work and so then you can do the work so you set that up in some sermons and then you introduce prayers that do that right so this is changing the liturgy very gradually the liturgy informs the sermon the sermon informs the liturgy and actually the sermon's part of the liturgy so that's what i'm going to how do that's you within your community bring this kind of doubt ambiguity unknowing questioning yeah, in? That. yeah that would be great that's, that's 
where people need praxis. Yeah, exactly. So that was either John or Adam. Got no idea which one. <laughs> you know, no idea. Can you guys tell, honestly? We don't even know anymore. They, they don't even know. <laughs> We'll let you guys they don't even that. know. Yeah. Sometimes they go around to different houses. I think they're both married. They're both their part. Their partners don't even know the difference. Yes, swingers, theological swingers. Just type that out on Twitter. The deconstructionists are theological swingers. I don't know. Yes. Now that was Adam. Adam, and that was John. Cool. Okay, guys. Love this. I love that I can do Facebook lives. This is a great way to get free content out to people on my iPhone. What an amazing technology. Wonderful. I'll talk to you very soon. I'll talk to you in Belfast, actually. I'll try. I'll get Rob Bale onto my next Facebook Live because he's in Belfast with me next week. And, um, and I, I think I promised already what I was going to talk about next time, and I've forgotten. So you can remind me if you want. Talk to you soon. Bye.